Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, uh, along with my producer, Lindsay, and we have today on our show, Dr. Sabine Hazen. She is a gastroenterologist in California, and she is going to be talking about some trials that she is doing with treatment of COVID. Uh, One of the ways I found out about her is she was going to be talking about some of these treatments of COVID that she is familiar with, and she was actually censored. And as you guys know, there's been a lot of that going on, and I want to make sure that we get the um, proper information out there um, regarding COVID because a lot of this stuff's been censored. We've been censored a couple times on 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 YouTube, and that's one of the reasons that we've went over to Rumble anytime we talk about COVID for sure. So um, she's going to be talking about some treatment um, prophylaxis, and she's done a really cool study on mapping out the microbiome of our gut and seeing who is more susceptible to COVID and, and how treatments work better in, in that way. So without further ado, Dr. Hazen, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yes, you're welcome. So let's just go ahead and get started. You were censored for this talk that you were going to do. Tell us a little bit about the censorship and how you found out about it. And then tell us about the, what the talk was going to be about. So it was the first conference, first international conference on ivermectin, and it was actually uh, Dr. Tom Barodi uh, invited me to speak. He is the father of fecal transplant, which, as you know, or maybe you don't know, is a procedure where we basically um, utilize microbes and put them in the colon, transplant them in the colon in order to achieve a cure for Clostridium difficile, a bacteria we get from taking antibiotics or um, that we're doing in research right now for multiple other conditions that we're trying to pass through FDA. So basically he is a pioneer. He's been doing um, microbiome transplant for years. And uh, we connected because we are doing a lot of work together on autism, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, et cetera. And um, while when COVID hit, uh, we felt that because we knew so much about the microbes and, and microbiome transplant, we decided that we should probably look into all the data that's out there and figure out a, a formula to treat patients. Dr. Barodi is also the creator of the um, treatment uh, for H. pylori, the, the triple therapy. If you remember Helindac, Pyloropac, et cetera. So Helindac was his uh, triple therapy. He's also the creator of um, a treatment for MAP, mycobacteria paratuberculosis, which also utilizes a triple therapy combination. So he's very big in triple therapy, very big in uh, combination therapy. And we felt this virus needed a a combination therapy. Uh, Because I do microbiome work and looking at the microbiome and seeing what changes in the microbiome, um, essentially, um, I had the, the advantage of having a genetic sequencing lab. And so basically the meeting was to invite me. So I, I basically started spearheading three protocols at the FDA uh, for early treatment and one prophylaxis on uh, COVID. At the same time, I was looking at the microbiome on COVID-19 and also looking for COVID in the stools. Um, one of the protocols is the ivermectin protocol, ivermectin, doxycycline, zinc, vitamin C, and D. 
And so we were asked to talk about, you know, my experience with patients that I treated outside of the protocol on an off-label compassionate use level. And these patients were basically patients that could not qualify for the protocol because their oxygen saturation was less than 90%. Um, when this happened, we said, well, you know, our, our jobs as doctors is to basically tell other doctors what works, right? It is really to reach out to as many doctors to kind of give them an idea of what we've seen work, right? That's how innovation in medicine occurs. It happens on the front line in the hospitals where you basically figure it out. So um, we were invited to basically speak at this conference. And then, you know, lo and behold, um, I thought it was definitely a very educational conference. And that was pulled down and censored. And I, I honestly don't know why. I mean, there was nothing that we were saying. We were just presenting cases. Um, that we as physicians um, noticed work, whether anecdotal, because that's what the whole scientific community will say, well, anecdotal data. Well, you got to start with the anecdotal, right? You got to start with the hypothesis. If you stop the hypothesis and that hypothesis works, well, you're done. I mean, goodbye humanity. You got to try all the hypothesis. It's research. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows the future. We don't have a magic ball that tells us what's going to happen, what's going to cure COVID. We have to try everything. Right now, COVID, and I've said that before, is like Rome burning. You got to put everything on the fire and then go back and say, okay, well, what worked? And maybe everything works and maybe nothing works, but we got to try and we got to try everything. And the fact that we're stopped from trying cheap solutions is is ridiculous to me. That's not science. That's not medicine. That's not the art of practicing medicine. Maybe the business of medicine to try to push expensive drugs, but it's not the art of medicine. That's not what I went into medicine for. So do you see any reason why they, who stopped the conference and, and what was, and, but you don't have any idea about the reasoning and, but who stopped it? I think the I think these these stopping and censorship are geared to you know not confuse the uh, the message that is being put out there, but at the same time, um, you know you cannot just have one message. That's what freedom of speech is all about. You cannot just have one scientist lead the whole planet. That's not how we do medicine. The humanity is not a guinea pig. And, you know, right now we're following one narrative, one plan. If that plan doesn't work and it actually kills more people long-term than short-term, then, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Can you tell us a little bit more specific about these trials? Um, you mentioned that... I think you have so four. I'm of them. A bit, so um, because I do clinical trials, um, I've seen the benefits of, you know, I, I have an idea of what a good microbiome is in a way. I mean, not, it's the beginning of research on it, obviously. So I, I'm not, um, you know, this is a beginning. Um, 
you know, but we've seen definitely certain things in the microbiome that we see in kids with Crohn's and kids with autism and people with Alzheimer's, people with Parkinson's, et cetera. Um, we, you know, my first approach was prophylaxing was you've seen all over the vitamin C, vitamin D and zinc that actually came from one of my protocols that I submitted April 2nd on clinicaltrials.gov. Why? Because there was data um, out of different countries that vitamin C and vitamin D were beneficial. So I felt, well, I know what vitamin C and vitamin D does to the microbiome. It definitely could be beneficial. Let's try to, to give it in a formula. I knew zinc was a blocker of the virus. So I said, well, zinc is definitely another component that we need, right? I mean, in a sense, you, when you create a formula to kill a virus or to kill a bacteria, you have to think of how do I destroy this virus? What is the mechanism of action of this virus? And how, and you're in pharmacy, so you know. So what mechanism of action do I need to kill the virus? And then what do I do to boost the microbiome to enhance my gut flora performance so that I have, you know, a better chance of fighting, right? Because your immunity is in the gut. So, you know, I started um, creating these vitamins, Z-I-N-C-D, and I basically put them on um, clinicaltrials.gov on all my protocols. And so they were um, the beginning with the idea was two hydroxychloroquine every three months. Why two hydroxychloroquine every three months? Because hydroxychloroquine has a half-life of 29 days. And so I felt, you know what, and, and what is the mechanism of action of, of hydroxychloroquine? And most people don't know, but actually hydroxychloroquine goes into the lysosome and changes the pH. The lysosome was, is where the virus ends up in the cell, right? So it changes the pH to an alkaline pH. So when the virus penetrates the cell into the lysosome, the, the hydroxychloroquine changes that pH and eventually kills the virus, right? And that's one of the thought mechanism that makes sense, right? So my thought was because it lasts, you know, 29 days in the body, really 30 days, it's still probably an alkaline milieu in the cell so that if you get it, you know, the key is to intercept it and stop it from getting into the cell. So that's why the importance of zinc. But zinc is very difficult to absorb, right? I mean, you get people that are kind of nauseous. So we had to create this vitamin that was a uh, liposome, that, that had some fat in it to absorb it a little bit better. And, um, and by the way, you'll hear me talk uh, very, you know, non-academic, but more down to layman's terms for people to understand that because I always feel when doctors and scientists complicate things, people are lost and we really need the public to, to understand, you know, mechanism of actions because they didn't take microbiology in college, some of them. Um, so we need to explain it to them. Absolutely. So, Thank you for that. Yeah. So basically the virus uh, is stopped the virus sits on an ACE2 receptor, which is a receptor on the cell. Then it penetrates into the cell. If we can stop it with a zinc, a zinc um, element, then it doesn't enter the cell. So zinc is a first 
thing, right? And then vitamin C and vitamin D really acts on the microbiome by boosting the immunity without really saying how it does it until it's published. You'll have to trust me on that to know that it's a good product. Um, you know, I, I knew of, of vitamin C when I was exposed, you know, at different, you know, I would train at Jackson Memorial Hospital and we had a lot of people with different uh, viruses and bacteria and, you know, TB resistance and, and, and def definitely deadly viruses um, at Jackson Memorial. And really vitamin C has always been my go-to um, pill because I felt like, well, it's Linus Pauling is right in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And, and it's always kept me uh, really good, but vitamin C can be a bit tough with the stomach. So again, the, you know, the formula and the way you're making it is important. So, so we actually worked with a compounding pharmacist like you, um, uh, Jeff Gross and uh, Mickey Fine Pharmacy in Beverly Hills to make us our vitamins. So awesome. we compounded them. So we compounded it's vitamin C, D and zinc all together in one pill. And then we added the hydroxychloroquine as a, uh, for the prophylaxis trial. We submitted that April 2nd. And then the other protocol was more of a treat. So, and the, the people that we basically are giving the protocol to are either people that are high risk, like they, the husband was exposed to his wife who got COVID and, or, you know, um, healthcare workers that are exposed to COVID all day long. So those were our, that was our target population. Um, we were asked to do 600 patients. We're at a phase two level at the FDA. Um, so I basically uh, agreed to do this. I, I did it kind of like jumping into the fire to see. Um, April 2nd, it was approved as a, uh, as a clinical trial. Um, we had to do a placebo, unfortunately, because of pressures from um, other centers demanding a placebo trial, uh, which I thought was ridiculous, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but, you know, the, the placebo is basically the vitamins because I said, I'm, I'm not, not going to give anything to patients, you know. So one arm is we're giving them the hydroxy every three months. The other arm is vitamins. And, you know, so far, I mean, you know, the data will be shown, but uh, it's going well slowly. I mean, unfortunately, I'm self-funding the study, so it's it's hard to to do it all. It's hard to, you know, get so many patients. We have to do little by little um, to get the quality and research. So it's taking a lot longer than it should have. It is also taking a lot longer because, unfortunately, um, the the prophylaxis protocol went political. And so when it goes political, nobody wants to take a chance on a pill that everybody scared them that it could cause heart disease, right? And so um, my cardiologist is Dr. Alon Steinberg. And he, when we do the treatment, so that was the prophylaxis protocol. We don't do anything for that protocol except, you know, make sure patients don't have G6PD deficiency, and, and give them vitamins, that's it. Um, the other protocol is the hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, vitamin C, D, and zinc. Um, again, that protocol, you know, we, um, we had difficulty. We still have difficulty recruiting for it uh, because the placebo component, patients would rather call, you know, frontline MDs, for example, and get their drugs or all these doctors that are right. brave enough to write these drugs. And so... Um, 
you know, so, and I don't blame them. I mean, you know, if I'm dying with COVID, I probably wouldn't want to go into a placebo control trial. So, um, you know, the other problem with doing these trials is it's extremely um, time consuming because, you know, when you don't know, I mean, I'm blinded, right? So I don't know whether I'm giving a placebo or the real drugs to the patient. And these patients, we monitor their oxygen sat, we put them on a halter monitor at the bedside to measure, to monitor the heart. And Dr. Steinberg, my husband monitors all that. And, um, you know, we look for QT intervals because that was the big thing, right? QT problems, QT prolongations. So let's see the QT prolongations. So we're writing that paper, by the way, it's coming. Um, so uh, that's, that was, um, so that's, that's what we did. The reason it's difficult is because if you are giving a patient a placebo, you have to monitor the oxygen saturation. The oxygen saturation tells you whether the patient is going to crash or not. So our endpoint is whether the patient continues on the trial or not. And so I watch them, I give them my cell phone, you know, these patients have access to me 24 seven. So that means I don't sleep anymore since March, I haven't slept. And it's like, you know, they'll call on Friday at two o'clock in the morning. And so if the oxygen starts dropping by 4%, then we switch them, we stop the trial right away. Or if they don't improve and they say, you know what, Dr. Eason, I'm not feeling better. Can we go on an open label? Then I give them open label and I treat them. And so far, happy to say that nobody has died on my shift. And so that's one good thing. So even though we are doing all these trials and the patients do do decompensate. Uh, I'm pretty aggressive in the treatment once we take them off the trial and they're not improving from the trial. Um, the third trial is a real, you know, uh, is, uh, is ivermectin, doxycycline, zinc, vitamin C, vitamin D, because I'm, I'm critical about vitamin C and D. Um, and basically what we did is we gave uh, the patients um, ivermectin, doxycycline, vitamin C, D, and zinc and the other group gets nothing. So that trial is a little bit faster at knowing, uh, at putting, not knowing, because I'm still blinded, but at um, following improvement or not, because uh, you know patients won't improve right away and you'll know. Or they'll improve, you know, I mean, you know, we, we don't know, but essentially those patients get treated ASAP on, on the open label. When they're too sick and their oxygen is less than 90% and the patients don't want to go to the hospital because they're scared of dying in the hospital, or they'd rather die at home, um, then we, um, we are more aggressive with those folks. And we put halter oxygen at their bedside. Um, we have a nurse going, etc. And so on the whole, I mean, you know, um, thank God I'm not that busy in a way. Because patients, I don't advertise. People come to me from doctors that refer them to me and and people that find me like you do. Um, So it's been good to do these trials. Um, You know, we're excited to finish. I'm excited to finish. After this, I'm taking a vacation for like 10 years. (laughs) I don't want to speak to any human being. (laughs) Much deserved. Yeah, I mean, this is tough, right? I mean, this is, uh, you know, you're fighting with the external factors that are trying to push other drugs, you're finding to see the data as a scientist. And and really for me, I jumped into this and you're fighting with patients' anxiety that is probably the number one problem because of the 
media and all the fear factor, right? Mm-hmm. You have patients that are so scared of dying, right? And you have to remind them that only a small, small percentage die. And so, you know, I think in medicine, we, we always, you know, tell patients the risk of anything, right? I mean, if, if people knew the risk of dying from a motor vehicle accident every single day, nobody would be driving. No. Right. right? If anybody, if everybody knew the risk of aspirin causing a GI bleed, nobody would be taking aspirin. So I think we have enhanced the fear factor. We have scared doctors from practicing. I'll be honest, you know, doctors are scared to write a cheap drug like hydroxychloroquine. I mean, and not only a cheap, but an old drug. Uh, Doctors are scared of writing ivermectin, a drug we gave for babies with scabies. So it was good enough and safe enough for babies with scabies, but it's not safe for dying patients. And, And by the way, the patient is dying. You have to do everything to try to save the patient, right? Right. If the patient wants it and the patient is consenting, that's why we have like a 27-page consenting document in our protocols. I didn't want to do these trials. Like a lot of my colleagues and God bless them, you know, are, do, are writing these, these prescriptions nonstop for patients because they want to save lives, right? And I didn't want to do these protocols without, FDA and without a a regulatory board watching, which is very difficult to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. And expensive. And I didn't want to have it done without a consent. So we had to create a um, uh, electronic consent that was HIPAA protected. We had to create, uh, we had to write protocols that was like, you know, three binders of, you know, it's probably about 10 pounds of paperwork. Um, And we did that very rapidly, March 14th. My team and I just sat down and said, okay, let's whip up these protocols because we had done that for other pharmaceutical companies for their products. So we knew how to do this. And so, you know, we submitted them through the FDA. Now, in the midst of this, you know, there there were other protocols that I was uh, given from, um, you know, a physician that was basically... A, component, a compound or a substance of a stem cell that he felt like could help. But unfortunately, that protocol never made it because it needed animal studies. And then we were also reached to do a uh, protocol for critical patients at the ICU. And it's a study using a, um, a monoclonal antibody, essentially, um, with the Department of Defense. So, you know, the Department of Defense has been following my work on the microbiome. Uh, CROs have been following my work. Know me. I'm in the clinical trial business, pharmaceutical companies. So pharmaceutical companies know me. Clinical trial research companies know me. And so we get approached all day long um, to do clinical research. And then I just select. I like this one because it was, you know, it it was... uh, sponsored by the Department of Defense. And I felt that this was probably going to be, you know, successful, especially in the intensive care unit where we don't really have much opportunities for these patients. So, you know, uh, right now we're, we're trying to recruit hospitals that want to be part of the trial. Um, we are working with our local hospitals in Ventura and Oxnard 
Uh, so we're in the process of going through the regulatory board to get those hospitals approved. Um, it is kind of slow in the hospitals right now uh, because it is summer and because, you know, everybody's outdoors and getting soaking up that vitamin D. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, once they start coming indoors and their vitamin D level drops and they're inside all day long and stressed and school has started and, and work is full force and your kids are going, you have to juggle kids going to school and job. It's not easy, you know immunity starts dropping a little bit and then viruses penetrate. So I think September and October is going to be telling. And I think honestly, instead of uh, stopping censoring what works, I think that this government needs to um, start having a plan and a task force to save lives and to stop uh, what could be a disaster in September or October, in my opinion. And I think they should look at the doctors that have had success. You know, I've not had one pay. I've treated hundreds. It's not, I'm probably over a thousand now uh, patients and um, no one died. No one died. I've treated patients whose oxygen saturation were 77% and they wow. didn't die. And we had them at home. We monitored. It's difficult. Um, but essentially uh, I think, you know, eventually my goal is to show as fast as possible the FDA that these drugs are safe. Um, you know, when we're ready, we're going to call them to look at everything um, because essentially, um, you know, we need to, to, to prevent what could be a disaster in September and October. Well, thank you for doing this. Obviously, it's a lot of work and um, yes, you are going to, yes, you're going to need a vacation soon. Um, so tell me a little bit about the treatment. You said if they start going downhill on the tri in the trials, you actually go with more aggressive treatment. Is that correct? Yeah. So I do aggressive treatment, right? I mean, and what is that? Aggressive treatment is everything. It's basically, you know, you got to think of pulmonary emboli, so eloquis, blood thinner. Um, you know, colchicine has been shown in some patients to, to do well. Um, you know, all these drugs that you just put together. Um, and then, of course, you know, you have access to, uh, I've had one patient that I actually added, um, I did ivermectin um, at home, and then the patient ended up going to the hospital um, and getting remdesivir. So I think maybe the combination of ivermectin remdesivir could have been beneficial in that patient. Um, you know, the this one patient was very complicating. Um a very complicating case. And that was the only patient that I actually sent to the hospital after maximizing her um, treatment with ivermectin and doxycycline, zinc, uh, eloquis, uh, vitamin C, vitamin D. So I think, um, and she was, you know, at the time that I sent her, her oxygen was already 96%. Uh, she just went for another medical condition that she had that needed to be uh, sustained with IV fluids and, and receive other things in the hospital um, that I couldn't control at home. Uh, and that was just recently, actually. So, but happy to say the patient was discharged with 100%. Uh, now, interestingly enough, the patient that got remdesivir next door to her didn't make it. So, you know, draw your conclusion. What was the beginning that helped? So, I, I personally think there are, there is a population that you have to be super aggressive with right. 
and you have to give everything, you know, everything in the kitchen sink, essentially, you know. And I think Dr. Peter McCullough and I have talked at length about these cases uh, because, you know, we we collaborate and he's, um, you know, and he agrees. I mean, he wrote the math protocol because he agrees that this is in some people, it's a very resistant virus. It's very difficult to treat with just ivermectin, with just um, hydroxychloroquine, with just all that. So I think you have to be innovative and you have to kind of, you know, medicine is an art, right? We're asked to to color a, a tree with black and white and it's either one solution or the other, but it's not always one solution. The idea of, well, you know, just give ivermectin to everyone it's not going to work potentially because there are those people that are not going to respond to ivermectin. There are those people that you're going to have to give hydroxychloroquine, by the way, which was politicized, you know, still has a role. I've had patients on both and, and doxycycline and Eliquis and, um, you know, and they've done well. So I think you have to use everything that's in your, and, and by the way, there's another one we, which I haven't used, but, you know, Dr. Human Norshazm uh, talked about uh, cyclosporin. Um, it makes sense. You know, I mean, it is a bug. So, you know, in a world of bugs, you need other bugs, right, to, cure, to kill the bug, right? So, and I, I think this is where, you know, the world needs to start listening to doctors that are involved with fat, polypharmacy, that are innovators, that are creators of compounds. You know, Dr. Barodi has had over 166 patents that he put out for the FD, for pharma. So, you know, I joined him because he was to me who I trust as a human being. Um, and I've, I followed his work and all of us GI doctors have followed his work. So to me, it was, you know, it was an easy follow to kind of jump into this fire with him because he had done it before. I mean, this is a man who treated leprosy. This is a man who, you know, treats mycobacteria paratuberculosis when we're just not even convinced Crohn's disease is mycobacteria paratuberculosis, right? This is a man who is doing fecal transplant, microbiome transplant on patients with Parkinson's to see if there's some truth to it, you know? So, and I think all of us that were brave enough to follow him, um, saw something that happened in the microbiome. Saw, you know, some changes after microbiome transplant, you know, from a couple patients with Dr. Uh, Colleen Kelly, who had two patients with alopecia areata with C. diff, and she did fecal transplant. And next thing you know, the patients grew hair, right? What grew, Now that wasn't reproduced. Nobody else could do that. But for those two patients, something happened that their hair grew. So those are the anecdotes, the the cases that you go, what is going on, right? What changed in the microbiome that allowed for this to occur? And that's what we need to look into, right? Think about it. The BRCA gene for breast cancer wasn't created on a whim. It was a scientist that basically took uh, notice that, you know, there was a family history of breast cancer. And why were these women that were born to moms with breast cancer, dying of breast cancer themselves. So she investigated all these patients because that was her hypothesis, right? 
her hypothesis was uh, it's a gene problem. We have to look at the gene. And she did the great study and, and basically the BRCA gene was discovered. And now all these women, uh, you know, get tested for the BRCA gene. It's the same thing in the microbiome space. There are some microbes that are triggering an imbalance that are creating an autoimmune process. Immunity is in your gut, period. So if you don't look at the gut, you've lost the boat. And if you stop the person who's looking at the immunity in the gut, you will be hurt yourself when you become the patient. I just jumped into this myself because I knew at some point I'm going to be the patient potentially, you know, with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. And wouldn't it be a shame if when I was in my fifties, I couldn't try, I didn't embark on this. Right. And I waited till 70 and said, I coulda, shoulda, woulda. Well, coulda, shoulda, woulda wouldn't help me at 70. Right. You got to do it now. When you see an opening and you get, and God sends you on a path of, playing with stools, who the hell wants to do that to begin with, you know, and collecting stools to begin with, you have to follow that path because all of a sudden doors open up and then you're, you, you land this idea of creating a protocol for COVID and you ask yourself, how am I involved in this? Believe me, this is the last thing I want. This is the last thing I wanted was to be, you know, speaking about this. The last thing I wanted was to, and you haven't seen me speak on any news outlets or anything, um, except this conference. I felt, well, this conference is given to doctors. They're going to have access to it. Then let me, let me speak on it. And then when it was censored, it was a shame because, you know, there was a lot of good data in there and, you know, of our experiences, of our anecdotes that they call Wow, a lot of information there. That's you got a lot of good stuff going on. Thank you so much for um, you know educating us about this and educating our viewers and listeners. Because you know my goal of this podcast is to educate and empower consumers to take charge of their own health. Um, and there are many different ideas out there, and I want to get those out there. So I thank you for doing that, Dr. Hazen. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. I think I think the key is to find a physician that basically you trust. And that, you know, we'll try anything uh, to save your life. And really, that's what it all comes down to, a patient-doctor relationship. Absolutely. I think think we have this perception uh, of doctors as being, you know, these, you know, these superhumans, but they're not. They're, they're, They're trying. They really are trying. But unfortunately, the system is so so destroyed in healthcare, really. I mean, from the 10 minutes you spend with a patient and you're supposed to know everything about that patient and and fix them to, you know, the regulations to stop doctors from writing these cheap solutions or trying to write these solutions or scaring them. And and also, you know, you remember, you know, a lot of doctors work for institution, for, for hospital centers, uh, clinics that basically don't want to um, try those things because they're afraid themselves of liability. But I don't know. I, I tend to think myself that, you know, the liability would be worse when, you know, the data, when you failed everything and then you come back and you say, you know what, what, what happened? What happened to hydroxy? What happened to ivermectin? 
And, you know, I'm, I'm in no rush to finish this trial. Personally, I'm doing it and then we'll see. Um, I hope there's, there's a lot of products out there that come out. Uh, but as we've seen, even with remdesivir, you know, that was thought to finish the pandemic, but it didn't. Right. Right. And, and so now we're trying all the vaccines and let's hope that stops the pandemic. Um, but if it doesn't, then, and then, you know, we'll bring in the monoclonal antibodies and then when everybody will have failed and the pandemic is still going on, they'll basically say, gee, I wonder what happened to those protocols of Dr. Hazen. And then that's it. Right. We need treatments, right? That's it. We'll need treatment, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a shame. So Dr. Hazen, what, what do you have a passion for? What drives you? What drives me is um, I don't like being told what to do. Mm. That's one. I don't like people telling me I can't do something. I, I thrive on people challenging me. I thrive. I literally become a hurricane. When someone says you can't do this or you're wrong, I become a hurricane to prove them I'm right. And my husband can tell you that. But, you know, I think every woman has that capability in her to become a hurricane. Um, so I think that's what drives me. The other thing that drives me is, uh, you know, I, I want to make sure I did good for the planet, right? I want to make sure I did good for humanity. I want to make sure that I tried to save the patient and I did no harm. That's what I went into medicine, right? I didn't go into medicine to become a business. It was never about a business. If I wanted to make a business, I would have sold shampoos or, you know, done, uh, whatever. Um, I went into medicine to save lives and to understand life. That's my passion. My passion is really, what are we here for? Where do we go after we die? Where does the body decompose? Where do those microbes go on to? You know, the process of, of dying is really decomposition yeah. by microbes in our gut, right? That bring us back to the earth. So, and microbes in the earth that basically takes us back. So what do those microbes do? You know, do they, you know, go back? I mean, I, I don't know. This is like the million dollar question. You know, we, we, we saw Clostridium difficile, which is the bacteria I've tried to kill for 25 years, um, is actually suppressed when you give it microbes, when you do fecal transplant, when you do stools from a healthy donor to a person that has C. diff and you transplant that, you're replenishing the microbes and all of a sudden, the C. diff stops secreting its toxins to kill the host, right? C. diff that I've tried to kill only to discover that all it needed was a bunch of microbes, yeah. right? Which is kind of like the formula of why we need a bunch of antibiotics or treatment for COVID because it's not just a one thing. So with C. diff, what was interesting is that, you know, there was a paper that showed that it was, it's actually 10 million years old. So here's a microbe that's from, you know, 10 million years old that is still alive in our guts. And we discovered it in a lot of, in a majority of patients uh, that didn't have any symptoms because it was just living there. Um, But also, you know, why is it killing the host when we kill the microbes in the human body? We have to pay attention to that because there's a lesson there, right? The lesson is you have you have an old microbe that's living 10 million years old. Um, 
and we try to kill it with antibiotics and then it starts killing the host, then we have to pay attention to maybe we're overdoing too many antibiotics for too many things that are not necessary. Right. Right. So, you know, you have the kid with an ear infection, that's a virus and he gets put on antibiotics. Well, that kills his gut. So it may improve maybe the, the ear infection. You know, you take antibiotics for strep pneumonia. Well, it's going to improve the strep pneumonia, but then what happens is down the road, you can have sequela because it killed other microbes. So we have to start paying attention to the microbiome. I can tell you that, you know, if you look at the microbiome of um, most likely of a hundred years ago, um, or you even look at the microbiome of farmers, you know, that are living in the earth with the earth, natural food, et cetera, their diversity is a lot better um, than the diversity of people with Crohn's disease or autism. And so one wonders if maybe as we kill this diversity and how do we kill all this diversity? Well, all the stuff that's over the counter, that's not regulated, all the, you know, probiotics that are not regulated, the too much antibiotics, too much medications. I think we need to pay attention to the microbiome because as much as we're preserving Amazon jungle, we should preserve the microbiome. Absolutely. It's all about the gut, isn't it? Yes, it's all about the gut. And this Doc, is the virus is a is a sign basically that tells us that. Okay. Absolutely. So Dr. Hazen, as we wind this up, um, if anybody has any questions or wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, the best way to get a hold of me is the website progenabiome.com. So P-R-O-G-E-N-A-B-I-O-M-E.com. Um, and uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you have definitely uh, made our goal of educating and empowering individuals on how to take care of their health. I so appreciate you being on today. Um, you are definitely a wealth of knowledge and I appreciate you being on the front lines and, and um, you know, being willing to go out there and, and do innovative treatments. So thank you so much, Dr. Hazen. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for being on today. You've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you for tuning in today.